When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, we're taking a couple days off during the Major League Baseball All-Star break, but we've got a treat for you today. Somebody you've watched on ESPN for decades, NFL insider Ed Werder will join us to talk about his one season covering the Bucks and his career in Dallas, reporting on the Cowboys, his witness to the split between Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones. Part one of our interview today will focus on his incredible career covering the National Football League. Ed Werder is our guest on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times along with producer Steve Versnick. Hey, if you'd like to be a sponsor to this podcast, we've got lots of new ways you can do that. Uh, this podcast is growing every day, and our advertisers are showing great success, and you will too. So for information, contact us on Twitter at SportsDayTB, or you can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. We'd love to have you be part of our team. All right, Edward joins us now, and I should say, as, as Chris Berman would always introduce you, uh, yeah, let's go down to Valley Ranch and Edward, who's standing by with Cowboys coach Jimmy Johnson. Ed. Yeah, Boomer would do, uh, uh, as Much you might longer, know, right? some very elaborate uh, and time-consuming introductions. <laughs> Generally, they were longer than the time allotted for me for to deliver my actual report. Um, and so uh, one time, we were I was in Cleveland for Favre's first game uh, with the Vikings, and he did one of those long and elaborate uh, introductions <laughs> to the point that my on-air response was that if that intro had taken any longer, I'd have to go back in the locker room and make sure Favre had retired again. <laughs> Which uh, I, I think he, I think he was a little insulted by it because it's kind of one of those things that you know unspoken when you're a TV giant, you don't take issue with it publicly like I did, even though I did it in kind of a fun way. Uh, and so it took him a, a little while to get over it, I think, but then it kind of became our little thing on the air. Uh, you know, he, 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 I went away for a week or two because I was not doing Sunday games. I was doing Monday games or whatever. And so when I came back, he acted like I had been suspended for upstaging him on television. Uh, and, and said, yes, I've let, I've let Ed come back now to the show. And I, you know, played along and said, oh, you're a very benevolent man, Boomer, and we're so appreciative of that. But, uh, yeah, we actually developed a, you know, a great friendship. And uh, a couple weeks ago, Rick, uh, uh, I've gone to support the Tom Coughlin charity golf event up at the TPC Sawgrass because I do my best charity work with a golf club, not a shovel. And um, <laughs> Chris Berman and Chris Mortensen and Tom Jackson, we all went in a day early and got together and had a dinner at the Capitol Grill, played golf for us the next day, and and then fully participated in Tom's great event. So, uh, yeah, there's some great friendships that have come out of my uh, time at ESPN, and, and Boomer certainly among those. And and uh, to that point, once uh, that was pointed out to me, every time I, Boomer would introduce you, he'd always he'd always end the introduction with, "I hope that wasn't too long for you," or something <laughs> something of that nature. Like it became a thing, you know. It was pretty interesting to watch. So uh, it, be it became yeah, a thing, and kind of like after I delivered my report that morning, on the back end of it. Um, he said something to the effect of, uh, uh, next time I might be throwing that to Rachel Nichols, you know, uh, <laughs> suggesting that I might disappear from the show. 
uh, at his at his urging. And and afterwards, I was like, it, it just occurred to me about then that oh, I might have violated some you know uh, some car. I might have created some cardinal sin. I might have uh, committed there on television. So I off air, I said to the producer, I said. Uh, how was that? He said, well, it was great for us. I'll let you know later how it is for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't have a problem with it after he realized that it was good television and uh, and you were always yeah. respectful. And as you mentioned, you have a, a friendship. Now, our friendship goes back to 1991, if people can believe that. Neither one of us are really that old. We both started as teenagers. Um, but uh, <laughs> non- nonetheless, you had covered the Broncos for a number of years with, in Boulder for the Daily Camera. And then... You were uh, a member of, of the National, which I, for people who yep. can't remember that publication, it was sort of the newspaper forerunner, if you will, of the athletic where, man, you talk about big time talents. Uh, it only lasted a couple of years because it had distribution problems and other things. But that was I wish that it had lasted really cool. a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe one year, right? It only lasted like I think after the time when I got there, it was only, you know, like eight months or 14 months or something that before it went under. Yeah. But. Yeah, it was a great. It was a great concept. It was uh, poorly executed, uh, not from a journalistic standpoint, but uh, it was launched at just the wrong time. The economy went into a recession, uh, sure. so advertising revenue was hard to come by. Uh, there was pretty elaborate spending. I, I think. I, I think it's fair to say um, uh, by e- everybody who was traveling on an expense report, uh, and there were some you know ridiculous extremes uh, examples of that. Uh, like John Feinstein, you know, had to buy an, a last-minute first-class ticket back from Wimbledon to the British Open because his cat died or something. Um, but um, it, was, it was a great concept. And, and then they, they also didn't control the sites at which the, the paper was actually printed uh, or distribution. So, you know, I mean, it worked in the northeastern corridor where there was, you know, subway traffic and people, you know, picked up their newspaper on their way to the subway. It didn't work. Uh, when people out west had to go find a newspaper rack, and when they did find a national newspaper rack, inevitably there was always something wrong. Like, hey, you know, it was a great paper, but you know, Wednesday's paper was still in there on Friday. Sure. Yeah, and it was, it and for me, yeah, and, and for me, I mean, it was a great staff. Uh, like, I was the least accomplished person in the on the entire staff, um, and I was fortunate they were willing to take a chance on me. In fact, I remember when I interviewed with Frank DeFord himself, the, the great legendary uh, Sports Illustrated writer, uh, he had me meet him when he was uh, making a stop in Dallas uh, and, and doing something for cystic fibrosis, a big, you know, rousing address to generate some fundraising because his daughter, we all know, died from that. Uh, and so I met him upstairs in his room after he reduced his entire, you know, room of lunch, his luncheon room to uh, tears. Uh, I followed him up to his room per his instructions. No, I wasn't stalking him. Um, <laughs> and as he was changing clothes into his travel clothes, and as he was standing there in his, uh, I'll never forget, purple and uh, yellow polka dot bo- silk boxers, uh, we talked about the opportunity for me at the National, and he was really excited about it. And then I had the audacity to ask him for a contract. Uh, and he looked at me uh, with great disappointment, um, and said something like, well, you don't have a contract where you are now. And that was true. But as I pointed out to Frank, but we've had a newspaper where I am now for 119 years. <laughs> uh, so I didn't get the contract, but I did get the job. Uh, and, and when it, when I, when our, when our time ran out, uh, I did go to the Orlando Sentinel and, and that's where our relationship began. Uh, I lived over in the Tampa area, area, 
yeah. but I cover the the Tampa Bay Bucks that uh, one ill-fated uh, season, one of many, I guess. But uh, I, I still say uh, and, I still say that in in my experience, ninety one of the years that I've covered the Bucks, and I started in ninety, was still to this day the one of the more bizarre and newsy years. I mean, they went three and thirteen as a football team, so it was a disaster on the field. But the things that happened off the field were unbelievable, and we learned uh, as a group of journalists here when you when you joined when you joined the beat that uh, you were gonna you were a different cat because I remember getting beat right away on a story about Charles McRae who was holding out, and I learned a lesson that off the record doesn't mean out of the newspaper. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that that happened early Are you on. I cheated? And, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm saying that you got it in there, and uh, and we did not, so we got beat on it. So. Um, but Donald Yee, remember, was the agent, and it was like one of his first clients. And he, of course, he came on to represent some pretty good players after that, right? And he, and he, he represented me. But, yeah, Tom Brady he has, and yeah. uh, he has Sean yeah. Payton. So, yeah, he's done quite yeah. well for himself. <laughs> he has. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was a crazy, ridiculous year because that was the year that Richard Williamson was the head coach. We had the uh, – Yes. Uh, once they fired him, which we all knew was inevitable almost from game one, right? Uh, and every mm-hmm. week somebody kind of had to ask him the hardball question. Um, and you, you do a great imitation of him, but we always, somebody always had to ask him kind of about how he saw his future after the most recent on the field catastrophe. Uh, and, and Richard was a very charming guy and very good natured. And, uh, you know, never really, I think at the time he took it personally and, and understandably so, but he didn't hold it against at least me later on because when he was uh the panthers receivers coach and i did a lot of panthers games uh you know he, he would always you know chat me up on the field before the game and, and couldn't have been you know a nicer man about the whole thing but yeah it was it was a total fiasco well you had i mean if you recall that year um not only the whole charles mccray and back then you know first round picks held out and all that phil Kruger was the one and done only uh, general manager who was really sort of a sort of a, an accountant, if you will, a cap guy, if they even had a salary cap back then. I'm not sure they did, but he handled Mr. C's money. Um, you had uh, Vinny Testaverde. He handled the money Chris like Chan- there was a cap. <laughs> yeah, he did. He really did. And he, uh, you had Vinny Testaverde and Chris Chandler getting into a fight oh, in the yeah. locker room. That was a big deal. And Dexter Manley, who one time, I believe, yep. picked you up in the locker room physically, uh, sort of as an endearing way, but – but but yeah, but <laughs> rather frightening to watch uh, from our perspective. So it was really bizarre. And Dexter Manley, of course, that was the last time he played because he ended up testing positive for drugs while yep. in Tampa with the Buccaneers. Didn't make it through the season. And then and then That's didn't right. we have Jesse Solomon and those guys kind of execute yes. a, uh, a takeover of the football team from the coaching staff <laughs> and t- toward the end? <laughs> and we had uh, uh, Don Banks and I running into Jackie Sherrill, uh, who claimed to be recruiting and not interviewing for the Bucks head coaching job. We had the uh, back and forth. Uh, Bill Parcells is coming. Bill Parcells is not coming. Yeah. Uh, and and that whole thing, yeah, it was it was a crazy, crazy year. And then, you know what the thing I most remember on the field, and I think you and I were trying to get access to Mr. Culverhouse during this particular drive, but they were playing the Packers, and something had happened to Vinny because something always happened to Vinny, and Jeff Carlson, who you liked quite a bit as a guy. Still uh, taking over Still a quarterback, here, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and a nice guy and everything. Um, and I just remember that he threw uh, three interceptions on a single series. The first two were uh, nullified by penalties, but you know he was really determined to throw an interception on this drive. There was no stopping Jeff Carlson from throwing an interception on this drive, and of course he came through and delivered a third, uh, which is the only time I ever remember that happening. 
we had gone upstairs to where the owner's box was at that time, the uh, the old sombrero, and it was uh, it was one of those things where we were hanging out while that took place and watching the scouts from other NFL teams shake their head and have obvious uh, uh, excitement to see that that occur. But uh, speaking of Hugh Culverhouse, and I, I it, the story of '91 can't be told without without telling people just how how dogged you were as a reporter. There came a time towards the end of the season where Culverhouse, of course, was courting Bill Parcells. Um, and he had frequent trips back and forth on his plane from Tampa to Teterboro, I guess, up there, and and, and, and then would go on and talk to Bill. Upstate New York, um, where Bill was, right? Up, yeah, upstate New York. There came a time where you were just doing your job and trying to figure out like what the comings and goings of, of Culver House was, and the way you did that was to go to Hangar 1, which was the private uh, terminal of, of Tampa International Airport, and somehow you found yourself on Hugh Culver House's plane. Without an invitation, and uh, well, the, you know the airport, the, the airport, and, and one buck are you know virtually on the same piece of property, uh, so right. it wasn't a big endeavor to drive over there. But what we wanted to uh, accomplish was I wanted to get the numbers uh, off his plane, the, the tail, sure. the numbers of on his on his tail, the tail of his plane, so that mm-hmm. I could track it through FlightAware. And see mm-hmm. where he was going, and who, and thereby gather who he might be meeting with as uh, potential coaching candidates. And was particularly interested, as you mentioned, in Parcells, and because the Bucks were obviously not very forthcoming about the whole thing, and, and Parcells demands great discretion and so forth. Anyway, so I, I drove out, I think during the lunch hour, to the airport over there, and I asked the woman at the front desk if uh, I might be able to take a look at Mr. Culverhouse's plane, that I was a journalist, that I was covering the Tampa Bay box, uh, that I was writing uh, some pieces about Mr. Culverhouse. And one of the things uh, that he constantly mentioned to me uh, was the value of this plane and how much he cherished it, how important it was to doing his business. And I just want to be able to see it so I could describe it uh, in in proper terms. And the woman uh, looked at me and asked me again who I was and what I was doing. I explained it all one more time. Um, and, and she finally says to me, well, you're in luck because we are just getting the plane out of the hangar because Mr. Culverhouse is about to go on a trip. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, that would be fantastic if you could just point it out to me here. Um, I'll just, uh, you know, look at it and, and, uh, be able to describe it and I'll be on my way. And she said, oh, uh, mm-hmm. let me, let me call his manager. And I tried to tell her that was not necessary just again to point the plane out to me and out the window and uh, I'll be on my way. And, uh, she insisted on calling this manager. So I had to go through the whole story again. Well, he ever helpful, uh, invites me out onto the tarmac and onto the plane. So I can describe not only outside of the plane to my readers, but to the inside of the plane to my readers. So I'm actually on the plane, not wanting to be on the plane. And I can't wait to get off the plane. Um, because Mr. Culverhouse is obviously going on a trip and could show up at any moment, and I didn't think my future as a stowaway was very good, and I knew he probably would not understand why I was on the plane, no matter how I explained it, and so my only goal once I was on the plane was to get off the plane before he got there. Uh, but it was mission accomplished to an extreme. Uh, I did manage to uh, avoid detection. Uh, he did not show up while I was there, but uh, I was extremely nervous the entire time I was on the plane because I knew I had no real reason to be there. One time outside of Hugh Culverhouse's office when so much was going on and we were waiting um, by his car, in fact, 
after this had occurred, I think Mr. C paid you one of the higher compliments that he ever did to any <laughs> report, which when he looked at you and he said in, in Hugh's voice, you're a diligent reporter. And you were. And yep. uh, and had he was and, he was he trying to that. close his door. We had all surrounded him when he showed up <laughs> right. and he was, he was trying to close the door to his vehicle and, and, and move <laughs> on with, you know, whatever, with whatever he had next. And I kind of positioned myself in such a way that he couldn't accomplish that without seriously injuring me. And given his legal background, I didn't think he would do that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. He did. He did utter that to me, which always made me wonder, did somebody tell him I was actually on his plane? <laughs> <laughs> It's likely they might have, and had that plane taken off, you'd have been you'd have been uh, cast away, perhaps in mid-flight. Who knows what? what I would not be on there. the. Yeah, it would be Tom Hanks and I on this out on this remote That's island right. with a coconut <laughs> that we named. That's right. But we knew then that you were destined for great things, and uh, not long after that, of course, you get the opportunity to go to the Dallas Morning News, which, uh, of course, now and at that time was was uh, one of the best newspapers in the country, but. Not only that, Jimmy Johnson had been in Dallas for a couple of years, and uh, the first year that you get there, they began um, winning the first of what became back-to-back Super Bowls in three, three and four seasons. Of course, Barry Switzer coming in after yep. that. What was it like? Um, can you even describe for me what it was like covering the Cowboys at that time? I mean, it was uh, you know the, the 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 team that wears the star in their helmet. Winning Super Bowls had to be like like no other experience, I think, in football. Yeah, it, it, and I had been there um, in 1989 when Jimmy, when Jerry first bought the team, and Jimmy, you know, came in, and Troy uh, was the first pick in the draft, and they went one in fifteen that year. I was there that season uh, before sure. I, that was right before I went to the national, and so mm-hmm. I, I knew the personalities and some of the dynamics. In fact, I, you know, I covered. I covered their first game together, which was in New Orleans. They lost 28 to nothing. And it, believe me, it was nowhere near that close a contest. Uh, and as Jimmy was walking off the field for the first time in the regular season as an NFL head coach, having failed to score even in the game, there was this, this person in the Superdome that uh, was yelling at Jimmy incessantly, Hey, Jimmy! Hey, Jimmy! And Jimmy was so furious, he, he didn't even look for the guy until... He got right to the entrance to the tunnel, and then Jimmy looked up real quick because this guy just refused to have any other outcome. And Jimmy looks up at the guy, and the guy yells at him, it's a little different when both teams are getting paid, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so uh, that was that was somebody who obviously thought he paid for his national championship in Miami. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Jimmy was a fascinating character, and, you know, the dynamics of the team were really interesting. Uh, and then the whole Jimmy Jerry thing, you know, at the time they were all right together, uh, when, mm-hmm. when they, when their success first began. And one of the great sure. things I think, you know, that happened with that, that team was that you had, you know, big personalities, uh, in Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith, who were, you know, among the best players in the history of the league at their positions, you know, time would prove. Um, but they were really egoless guys and, you know, none of them had had any kind of team success without the other. And so for that reason, and because, you know, Troy was such a unique uh, person, you know, I, I think he could have done anything individually that any quarterback in the history of football had done. Like, I think he could have been a Dan Marino type thrower statistically mm-hmm. had he been allowed that opportunity. Um, but, but he really committed to doing what was in the best interest of the team and wanted his career defined by championships uh, and so he was able to, 
you know, run the foot. They were, he was willing to be a quarterback whose team was known for running the football and playing great defense and avoiding errors. And so that's what they did. But, you know, covering the team, traveling with the team, uh, it was, you know, it was like you're covering the Beatles or something when they first came to America. Um, They were met at every hotel that way on the road. Uh, They had these, you know, epic, you know. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Championship games with the San Francisco 49ers almost every year. It was really between them and the 49ers to go to the Super Bowl every year. And, sure. and I think it might surprise people that Jerry Jones was really a big advocate of the salary cap. And, and that was odd because he had assembled such a great young team. And if he you know, couldn't pay whatever to keep the team in place, he was going to lose players in a short space of time. And that happened. But Jerry's belief was, hey, the only way um, you know, Eddie DeBartolo can beat me, because he personalized it in that way, the only way sure. Eddie DeBartolo can beat me, therefore the only way the 49ers can beat the Cowboys is if the owner is allowed to outspend me and this will prevent that from happening. And so it will secure the long-term future of the Cowboys dynasty. And he wasn't totally wrong about that, but obviously Eddie DeBartolo being the genius and that he is and committed to winning like he was figured out a way to circumvent the salary cap. And he signed Deion Sanders to, you know, a contract that, provided this enormous signing bonus and that, and the proration became the way to cheat the cap in effect. And Jerry learned from that. And he got Dion the next year and they won a Super Bowl again. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was fascinating, especially when it all began to fall apart. Uh, you know, the players just completely didn't understand uh, Jerry's logic in, in not being able to put his ego aside uh, and allow the, the players and the coaches to get credit for the victories uh, and ultimately, that's what kind of destroyed everything. It certainly has destroyed uh, the partnership between Jerry and Jimmy prematurely. And, you know, I mean, I interviewed Darren Woodson at uh, the Cowboys training camp year before last, and he's still bitter about it and said he will be for the rest of his life because he thinks that yeah. team could have won six or more Super Bowls in a short space of time and, and sort of been what the Patriots are now. I've heard that uh, same interview from other players that were on that football team uh, many times, from whether it's Michael Irvin or even I think Troy has talked about it. They all sort of feel that way, that, that breaking up the band uh, at that point was, was devastating to them. Um, even though Jimmy, uh, you know, there is a school thought too that, you know, Jimmy beat them up so much in practice that maybe this team would have fallen apart physically before they could win, win much more. Um, but there did, there did come a time when, when um, after uh, you know, they won their second Super Bowl that, uh, as you mentioned, Jones sort of wanted to share in, in the credit. You know? I mean, Jimmy was the, effectively the GM, but Jerry was called that, and, and he wanted more credit. And so this led to a divorce. But the fascinating thing is that it happened uh, with you breaking the story uh, after a long night of drinks, I'm not saying you were the one that was in the bag. It was Jerry and, and others. 
but you you were there with them uh, to 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 witness yeah. what was you were as much a witness to the history as you were reporting it at the league meetings in Orlando. Pick up that story. Well, that was that was after, like you said, they won the second Super Bowl um, in, in back-to-back seasons, and um, there was an owners' meeting in Orlando. And to give you a little bit of background, uh, sort of toward the end of the regular season. Uh, Jerry, Jimmy Johnson told Chris Mortensen that he would be quote unquote intrigued uh, if there were an offer from the Jacksonville Jaguars to be the first coach of that expansion franchise. And he said that uh, the week leading into the game that they were going to play at the Giants final week of the regular season that was going to determine the NFC East champion and which team would get a bye going into the playoffs. It was a, an incredibly important game. And Jerry thought it was totally out of bounds for uh, Jimmy to be publicly expressing interest in another job under those circumstances. And, and maybe he was right about that. Um, but obviously that, you know, things had led Jimmy to feel that way. He felt there had been a lot of interference that was, you know, not traditional, J- you know, Jerry really crossed the boundaries of traditional ownership uh, like nobody else in the NFL ever had. And so, so Jimmy made that remark at that giants game. Uh, the first time we had access to Jerry, uh, after that, I asked Jerry in the press box, I said, uh, said so uh, you want Jimmy to remain the coach, you have a contract for 10 years, uh, but what if he won you another Super Bowl? And Jerry looked at me sideways, like he often does, and he said, what if he won me another Super Bowl? What if I won him another Super Bowl? So, mm. so, so there you have it. Kind of Jerry felt like he was as responsible for the, uh, the success of the team on the field as the head coach was and felt to some degree the head coach was expendable, and he tried to prove this after that night in Orlando when he hired Barry Switzer. But to the night in Orlando, uh, there had been a small, you know, maybe a dozen of, of us writers who were uh, sitting in a group, and we, you know, it was from people all, all across the country. And we were sitting in a, in a large group, and we were telling stories and, you know, doing what sports writers do. Um, and, and Jerry and uh, Larry Lacewell, who was uh, in the scouting department at the time, came in. He was very close to, to Jerry. Uh, a couple of different times, you know, Jerry had seemed uh, very aggravated in his conversation. He got up periodically and left and then came back, and he was just as mad when he came back, and he, you know, was flinging his arms around and, you know, knocked the candle off his table and, and so forth. Uh, and this all occurred over a couple of hours, during which time our group got smaller and smaller as the hours got later and later. So eventually it was just four of us, me, Rick Goslin, a colleague of mine at the Dallas Morning News, Joe Frisaro, who had worked in Tampa, and I knew him from there, and Jeff Hobson, who was in, in Cincinnati. So mm-hmm. we're walking to go to the elevator to end the night, and, and everybody's walked past Jerry. I'm last, the last of our group, and Jerry grabs me by the pants leg, and he says, <laughs> you don't want to leave now. And I said, I don't. And he said, no. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because you'll miss the story of the year. And I said, well, what's the story of the year? And he said, I'm going to fire that blankety, 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 blankety Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> and I thought it would be a good idea to hear him out on that subject. <laughs> yeah, and that so was a good, the four good of us sat down um, and, and Jerry spoke about, you know, Jimmy, like I'd never heard him talk before. Uh, and like I said, I was there in 1989 from the very beginning when they went one in 15. Um, and, and he, and he just kept talking about how committed he was to finding somebody that he valued as a partner, somebody who would share their success, who had the same vision, blah, blah, blah. And he, and every time he 
mentioned Jimmy, he called him blankety, 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 Jimmy Johnson. So at some point, I'm really concerned about this being this, this information being in the hands of uh, potential competitors in Joe Fasaro and Butch Hobson, who in my mind uh, had nothing to do with it, except, you know, the free drinks hadn't run out quite yet. Uh, and that's the only reason they were still in the audience. Uh, Jerry really meant this message to be delivered to me and Rick Goslin. Anyway, I decided sure. I was going to protect the story. And so it was at my urging. And remember, back then in Dallas, you were either a Jimmy guy or a Jerry guy. And I was clearly a Jimmy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, hey, look, Jerry, nobody has a notebook or a tape recorder, and everybody's had a few drinks. So I, mm-hmm. I understand this to be an off-the-record conversation you know, with the promise from you that you'll give us all an honest accounting of your relationship with your head coach and how it's evolved to whatever it is. And, you know, Larry Lacewell about kiss me on the lips. Couldn't believe I was protecting Jerry when in fact I was really protecting me. Um, as you might imagine. Uh, Anyway, everybody Mm -hmm. agreed to that. And I knew it was a long shot that, uh, the other two people were ever going to get an audience with Jerry again. Sure. Um, and so everybody agreed that that was the case. This was all off the record. So, we listened to this for a while more, and, and, and finally Rick and I decided we, we've got to get these two other two journalists you know, out of here. And right. so we said, okay, Jerry, well, we're going to bed. We'll, you know, we'll look forward to talking to you in the morning and, and, and you living up to your promise and give us an honest account of where your relationship with Jimmy is. So we get in the elevator, and these other two guys are like wide-eyed, and you know, they're, wow, can you believe that? And uh, – said, what, what do you mean? And, and they kind of downplayed it. And they said, he's going to fire Jimmy. And I said, have you guys, like, Jim, they just won back-to-back Super Bowls. How many guys <laughs> in the history of coaching in the NFL have ever been fired after they won two Super Bowls, let alone right. two Super Bowls in two years? And, they, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay. I said, have you ever been out with Jerry before when he's drinking? And, and they said, no. And I said, every time Jerry drinks, uh, all he talks about is firing Jimmy. Like, it's always been that way. It's a um, thing, yeah. And so I said, let's just – let's just see what he says tomorrow. And they, they agreed to that. But before that, I, I'm pretty sure at least one of them would have written the story. Um, at least to the point that I'd said it was off the record, which I can understand if they did, uh, but I didn't want it to happen. And so the next day, uh, Rick and I come down and we, we figure it might, might take all day to get our audience with Jerry. Uh, instead, uh, we run into Larry Lacewell, who tells us that, hey, he's already let Jimmy know what happened uh, in the oh, ball, wow. that Jerry has yeah. threatened to fire him and, you know, thinks 500 coaches could do the job just as well. Uh, and, and he admits Jimmy was quite angry about that. Um, so after we have this conversation with Larry Lacewell, we go to go back inside the hotel because this took conversation took place out by the pool. And as we pull open the door to go back inside, there's Jerry. And he's all dressed up. He's got a knotted tie. He looks like he slept for 12 hours, you know, when he could have slept for more than two hours mm-hmm. at most. Anyway, so he says, hey, let's go have this conversation right now. So we're all for that. Well, in the conversation where he's supposed to provide an honest accounting of how his relationship with Jimmy has changed, you know, Jerry starts using the fact that uh, I'm the idiot who made everything he said the night before off the record, so I couldn't use any of that. And Rick Goslin says, well, you know, subsequent to that conversation, I've confirmed that, you know, you made a toast that, you know, 
in, in front of Jimmy and, and some of the other staff that had been had left the Cowboys, North Turner, Dave Wanstead, these other people, uh, and they were all offended by it. And, you know, Jerry's like, gosh, a misdemeanor compared to the murder I committed. You can write that all you want, you know? <laughs> and, and anyway, I think he really didn't, ne- he never did give us an honest accounting because he kept saying things like, yeah, the relationship has changed, you know, and I take, you know, I have proprietary interest in the Cowboys in a way Jimmy doesn't. And that's as it should be. I'm the owner. He's not. Blah, blah. So we left there quite frustrated. Well, one of the people who was at the table with the sports writers was Gary Myers, who used to work at the Dallas Morning News. And he said, hey, have you guys talked to Jimmy? And we're like, no. And he says, well, I was just talking to him, and he really wants to talk to you, and he's you know, waiting around here somewhere for you. So we went around the next corner. There's Jimmy. Jimmy pulls mm-hmm. us into a, uh, a meeting room, and he, and he says, what did I do? What did I do to you know, inspire this rhetoric from Jerry saying he's threatening to fire me? And, and we told him we really didn't know, but it was something about his reaction to the toast and everything like that. He goes, well, well what are you going to do with this? And we said, well, we're going to write about the toast thing and, and you know, how angry you and others were about that. And he said, well, what about the thing he said in the bar about firing me and 500 coaches could do the job? And I said, well, we can't write about that because it was all off the record. And Jimmy said, it was off the record, so you can't write about it? And I said, yeah, those are kind of the rules of journalism. And, you know, we honor them. And he said, okay. He says, So here's my comment on the record. He says, I'm going to leave the owner's meetings immediately and go to my home in South Florida and contemplate my future as head coach of the Dallas Cowboys after hearing Jerry Jones repeatedly threaten to fire me in a bar last night. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Jimmy put it all on the record for us. Tremendous. Uh, And it it was just a crazy 10 days after that. Uh, because they, you know, there were a series of meetings once they got back to Valley Ranch where they tried to put it all to get back together for one more year. Uh, and Jimmy, obviously, you know, in the chance to chase history as the first team to win three Super Bowls in a row, uh, Jerry tried to sell Jimmy on that concept, but Jimmy just never felt good about it again. Uh, and I think at that point he was pretty determined to leave. And when I saw him at Emmett Smith's football camp in Pensacola three days after the Orlando meetings, I kind of thought that when I met him at the airport, he'd be have a big grin on his face like he made Jerry twist in the wind all this these three days for his stupid public comments uh but Jimmy was actually madder then than he had been when I'd seen him before he left the meetings and that's when I knew that this really could be over and you know a short space of time later it was it's an incredible story and and then that led of course to the guy that he had mentioned to you in the bar that night Barry Switzer becoming the head coach of the Cowboys and he did win a Super Bowl Two years later, um, they didn't go the next year, but they won two years later, of course. Although I, I never gathered that the players really enjoyed, maybe not all of them anyway, Troy Aikman in particular, enjoyed playing for Barry Switzer. How, how different of a coach was he than Johnson at that time? Well, yeah, he was the, direct, you know, he was the exact opposite um, of yeah. Jimmy the taskmaster. And, I, and, and it's almost like you know Jerry said, hey, I made the statement that 500 coaches could win with this talent. And I'm not going to pick the best guy who has the best chance to win. I'm going to pick the guy who's 500th on everybody else's list. I mean, Barry Switzer was a great college coach and coached one of the great dynasties in college football history at Oklahoma mm-hmm. um, and won national championships and had a long relationship with Jerry and, and Jimmy. Um, but he did it a completely different way. And he'd been out of coaching for, I think, four or five years and had been entirely comfortable with his life, you know, after coaching in Oklahoma and where he's a living legend and just hung out at a, this, you know, restaurant called a fellows that had, you know, his, he had his own booth there 
And he did, he had no, he did not aspire to coach again, much less did he aspire to coach in the NFL. And now he's handed the job uh, that, that had belonged to Jimmy Johnson and inherited this group of players that had won back-to-back Super Bowls and, you know, was predicted to win many more. Uh, it was just too good of an opportunity. I think, I think, you know, Barry tells the story that he gets this call from Jerry after he stepped out of the shower and dropped his towel. He was so surprised. Uh, that Jerry had offered him this this job, and and I came I came about a, like twenty four hours, like barely had Jimmy out the door, just like you barely had Landry out the door. In fact, didn't have Landry out the door when he hired Jimmy. It was the same thing again when Jimmy left. Uh, Jimmy's departure really was upstaged in, in terms of you know placement of our stories at the Dallas Morning News the next morning. The big story was Switzer was coming, not that Jerry was going, or not that Jimmy was going, and. Uh, and, 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 you know, we talked to Aikman, who had been at Oklahoma, was recruited, you know, by Barry and, and went and played for Barry there. And Barry had promised a pro style of offense. He was going to abandon the wishbone. And, and he really did all of those things because of Troy's enormous, you know, talent as a quarterback. But then Troy broke his leg against who? Miami and Jimmy Johnson. And, mm. and transferred ultimately because Jamel Holloway took over and was one of the great wishbone quarterbacks in college football history. And Barry was not going back. Uh, for Troy once Troy had suffered this injury and, and rehab, but he right. did help uh, Troy land with Terry Donahue at UCLA where he became the first pick in the draft. So Troy, Troy had very good feelings about Barry. Um, and, and he even told the, those of us in the media who were Jimmy guys who, who really questioned whether this was going to work with Switzer. He said, Hey, you guys are going to love this guy. Well, mm. the thing I think Troy that surprised Troy Ultimately, was that Barry just wasn't as committed a coach as he had been, you know, when Troy was at Oklahoma, uh, and, and Barry was kind of lackadaisical, and Troy only knew one way to win, uh, and that was the Jimmy Johnson way. And a lot of players, including you know Michael Irvin, uh, were very committed to Jimmy's way and knew that it produced success. Uh, now there were other guys on the team who felt like, oh, my God, a breath of fresh air. You know, finally, we don't have to, you know, suffer, you know, Jimmy's oppressive practices. And as you mentioned, uh, and the tension that Jimmy created and the pressure, you know, that he applied, this was going to be easy. But so there were a lot and there, and there were probably players who felt like, hey, this is our chance to prove it wasn't Jimmy and it wasn't Jerry. It was great players, you know, that won the championships. Sure. And and. And so they went to San Francisco the first year and they lost, uh, you know, in the championship game. And I think it was, you know, Troy considers it the greatest game ever played because they got down 21 to nothing early in the game and came back and, and almost won in San Francisco. Uh, but they lost that game in the championship round. And then the next year they did win uh, the Super Bowl in Arizona. Uh, but they were no longer, you know, a tremendously dominant team anymore. And they lost their edge. And uh, ultimately, I think, you know, whether Jimmy would have stayed five years or not, I, I don't know. I kind of doubt it. But I think he definitely would have stayed for that chance to make history and win the third Super Bowl before he would have looked to leave. Um, but, but, of course, that never happened. And, and, you know, players are understandably angry about losing their chance to be, you know, this historic franchise, even greater than they're considered now. Uh, and it was something that was easily avoidable. But the two personalities and the egos of the people involved uh, didn't allow anything else but that outcome. We can still remember Barry Switzer. But, but Switzer, with... to his credit, Rick, you know, Switzer has told me before, uh, and he looked at me skeptically because he, he knew the scouting report. He knew, you know, which guys in the media were Jerry guys and which guys were Jimmy guys. 
Um, and, and, you know, guys who were Jimmy guys tended to be more critical of Barry. And sometimes he made it very easy, like, you know, the dumb and dumber thing in, in, up in Philadelphia when he, you know, went for it on his own 39-yard line uh, twice and failed both times. The first play negated by the penalty, so he ran the same play again and the same result. They failed again and lost the game. Uh, and it looked like they might never win another game that season. And instead, that was their last loss, and they went on to win the Super Bowl that year. But Barry, you know, the way Barry put it to me was like, hey, look, at least I didn't screw it up. You know, I inherited a great team and I didn't screw it up. I won with it. So you got to give me at least that much credit. And, and I do give him that much credit. We all remember him saying uh, after that Super Bowl with, of course, the big chant, we did it our way, baby, with Jerry Jones. Yeah. And that, that was sort yeah. of, that was sort of the, uh, the ultimate moment with Barry Switzer. Tomorrow we'll continue our conversation with Ed Werder. We'll talk about his unique relationship with former Packers and Vikings and Jets quarterback Brett Favre, as well as his family's very personal battles with cancer and how they become an inspiration to many facing the same challenge. For Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.